So, with the kids still in the in the sanctuary, that's great. There's some drawing stuff in the back if you want to grab some. You can grab some too if you want. You don't have to be a kid to draw. I always drew. I still do all the time. I remember going to, so I'm not, spoiler alert, maybe you didn't know, I'm not a part of the Free Methodist Church. I didn't really know that the Free Methodist Church existed until Jason and Erica came here. I didn't know that. So that was my introduction, so many years ago, and then, and then Jen got the call, and here I am. I grew up uh, in the Pentecostal churches I've shared, but actually my previous employment and my ordination is through the Evangelical Missionary Church of Canada. I didn't know that place existed either until I got a call from Jason Mills way back, uh, way, 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 way back. But long story short, I was at a, a, like a group think tank thing in Calgary where our headquarters were located whilst a part of the Evangelical Missionary Church to discuss children and youth ministry going forward in, the, in kind of the, the years to come. How do we pivot? How do we do this? Whatever. This is pre-COVID, mind you. And uh, I'd been to Calgary a couple of times and our, our hotel was right by the airport, but we had this opportunity to drive to Center Street. I don't know, you can put up your hand if you've ever heard of Center Street before. I didn't know that Center Street existed until I came to the Evangelical Missionary Church of Canada. But it is the largest church in Canada. It's enormous. It's like like five, six, seven thousand people large. It's a big, 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 big church. The largest church in Canada. And it was an EMC church. It's one of our churches, our flagship church. And our president at the time, had been working there previous to becoming our president. So we got a tour of this church. And I remember walking into, like, seeing Center Street from afar, and it's, it was like a mall, like a monstrosity of a building, in, like enormous, like overwhelmingly big. And I come into the doors, and it's just overwhelmingly large, like an, like an atrium in a mall. It's just like the, the windows above, lots of floors, the cafe. It's just huge. Massive, massive, massive. And you go into the sanctuary, take a look. It's a massive auditorium that's built to house thousands of people coming in and out of their services. And the wings and the, just the, all the rooms, huge. And I, I didn't say this because I didn't think it. But because I was walking around with these people that were a part of this church and kind of our president kind of leading us through and one of the staff members that had worked there before, he knew this building. I had this, I just thought, what if I came in there and said, hey, in just a short amount of time, this whole thing is going to come to rubble. See this beauty, the grandiosity, it's all going to, it's all going to be flattened. Just a little bit of time. Don't worry. It's going to get crushed. How would they have treated me? They probably would have thought, man, you're nuts. What are you talking about? It would take a hurricane and a tornado and a natural disaster to blow this thing. Like, Amos, be quiet. I'm not Jesus. I'm not pretending you to think that I'm Jesus. But at the beginning, right before this story starts, Jesus comes, he's just leaving the temple. And one of his disciples, they say, wow, look at this building. Jesus, can you, can you believe it? The temple in Jerusalem at the time was the largest structure for hundreds of kilometers, far and away. And by some revered as the most beautiful in all the ancient world. 
stunningly gorgeous, beautiful, gold, white, shimmering. Some people thought that like it's gone now, but they were they would imagine if if the if it was uh, recreated that the stone used for the temple proper was so bright that when the sun shone on it, that it would reflect like a lighthouse, like a beacon of light from wherever you were. And because the temple was on this mound, you could see it. Basically, in an eye shot, you could see it. So you could always kind of see, if you're in this vicinity, you could see this shimmering light that was God's temple. At the top of that temple proper, they were, they were really smart. They actually like pokes and prongs on the t- very, very top. I think gold inlaid to keep the birds off the top, to keep them from defecating on the temple, to keep it pristine. And this huge, monumental structure was gorgeous, overwhelming. And, and the disciples, who had probably seen this before, they were struck by its grandiosity, by its beauty, by the, by the by this intricate machinery that it took to run it. This is Passover time. There are hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem to be here at this place. And Jesus says, oh yeah, by the way, this whole thing is going to come to, come to ruin. It's going to be broken down. Not a stone will be left on top of itself. It's going to be destroyed. What? What? What do you, like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And if you could imagine being a first century Jew, a dedicated Jew, male Jew, following your rabbi, the culmination of your history as a people, going back to Abram, culminating with this encasement of God's presence. And your rabbi is now saying, it's all, it's all going to be gone. The feeling of the, the concern, the confusion. What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, I'm not going to get into it because it's really complicated. But the rest of the chapter 13, Jesus goes into this, just the most, some of the most detailed teaching he has. And it's a lot about the end of times. Not the way we would maybe think of it as 21st century evangelicals, but the way it, like, the, 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 the apocalypse happening in real time in Jerusalem. And it's really complicated and takes a lot more study and thought than I, can, than I can do myself. But he goes in this detailed description, and he's really, really, really starting to concern the people around him. If Jesus started over here as a miracle worker in the beginning of Mark, this great teacher, this great rabbi, this one with authority and power, and he kind of got everybody's attention, and then he does all these like, incredible, miraculous things, and calming the storm, and feeding the 5,000, and raising the dead. He's an amazing person, oh my goodness. Then he starts talking about how he's going to die, and well, what does that, I don't know what that means, but let's, let's go back to the healing stuff, Jesus. This is amazing. And the following, and the crowd, and the, as they get closer to the disciples, they're saying, well, we're going to get to Jerusalem? Wonderful. We'll get to sit on your right and your left. We'll be a part of your kingship. We're going to overthrow Rome? That's amazing. I want to be a part of that, Jesus. People are like, that's amazing. You're on a donkey? You're coming into the city? We'll mark you as a king. Let's put our stuff down and lay our stuff at your feet as you walk in the king of Jerusalem. 
But the more Jesus spoke, the more he spoke about himself. I think deep down the disciples are saying, this is, you're getting weird now, Jesus. You're saying things that don't make a whole lot of sense, Jesus. And by and large, we can tell as we look through the Gospel of Mark, we hear the disciples' words, I don't think they really got it. And so we come to that point in the passage that Peter just read. There are others who, I think, were trying to understand Jesus, and they hated him. Oh, Jesus, you are a troublemaker. And let's remember, Jesus is not the first nor the last Jewish revolutionary. He's not the first person who has a following. He's not the first rabbi who, uh, like revolutionary rabbi who has disciples. In a lot of ways, Jesus is just another revolutionary. There are others who came before him. There are others who come after him trying to do this revolutionary thing. They all ended in the same way, death. And so the high priest, the Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, they cannot stand Jesus, most of them, because he's a troublemaker. And there are real, legitimate political consequences for troublemaking. I, re I read this in a, in, a, in a commentary, and I never put this together. Pontius Pilate would not have lived in Jerusalem. He came from Caesarea. He, it was only in Jerusalem this week because he was there to quell possible rebellion. He knew as a, as a Roman prefect, as a Roman governor, boy, these, these Jews caused trouble. This is not the first time there's been trouble. Passover is usually a time when, when the Jewish people got like, like all hyped up with nationalism and their political agendas. And there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. So Pilate moves down for Passover too, just in case. And the leaders of the Sanhedrin, there's kind of this double-edged sword. They say, finally, Jesus has come to us. He's come to our turf. He's on our grounds. He can't hide in the hills like he has been. He's here. Great. But we can't take care of him yet. We have to wait. We can't grab him during Passover and risk real political tension, real political fallout, i.e. a rebellion. Because if we rebel, and if the crowd turns, and the crowd comes to Jesus' defense, Pilate, for sure, is likely going to bring down legions of the Roman guard, quell the riot violently, and take away our power, take away our authority as regional leaders. And that just can't happen. We got, we got a problem with Jesus. We got a problem with timing. So we're going to hold off. So they wait. Jesus, I think you can infer the disciples are feeling this, this weird tension. Jesus came into the city as a king, but did nothing. He left. Why haven't you acted, Jesus? Why haven't you gone to the palace, Jesus? What about the right hand and the left hand? Like, I'm supposed to sit on your right and the left. What about the donkey? Like, why did you leave? Like, really anticlimactic. Concern. What are you doing, Jesus? Well, every day, 
during Passover week, Jesus left. And he probably stayed at a place in Bethany, known as Simon the leper. Now, this is probably Simon the healed leper. If he was an, a still diseased leper, he probably wouldn't have had people in his home. He's probably healed by Jesus. He's probably an important figure later on in the story because he's been named. And Jesus is staying at his house about three kilometers away from Jerusalem. So an easy day's walk into the city, an easy day's walk out at the end of the day. And so one day, during this Passover week, Jesus is eating, lounging. And I can imagine him as kind of the custom. They didn't really have tables the way we do today. It's probably a lot better, probably a lot messier. It's actually what my kids do almost every day is eat on the couch, despite what their parents tell them. No? No. Eden's like, no, I don't do that. Uh, My younger one definitely eats on the couch. But that's what they used to do. They would have pillows around, they would have laying around, and, and they're eating and they're talking. But I don't imagine a celebratory meal. I imagine a somber, solemn, kind of confused sort of meal. That things are, like the tension is just really, really mounting in a weird, unidentifiable kind of way. And the disciples don't really know what to make. Because the more Jesus talks, the more obscure he's becoming to them, the more radical the things that he's saying are becoming to them, the less and less is making sense to their paradigm, the less and less action is happening, and they really don't know what to do with Jesus. And in this kind of large room, a woman approaches Jesus. A woman comes towards a rabbi. Very uncommon. And the woman, I, I, I don't know her name. We don't know her name. We're not told her name. We don't know what she looks like, but we can only imagine that her face is also sullen, almost driven by intuition, yearned by, by something in her guts. And she has something in her hand. It's a jar. And as she comes to Jesus, I can imagine the disciples are just kind of watching, probably not really paying attention. She comes to Jesus and she breaks this jar. And out of the jar comes perfume. And she pours it over Jesus' head. And the perfume drips down his face and down his hair and down his neck and down his back. And the room would have been exploded with the sensory aroma of this perfume. And at some point, one of the disciples looks over and in shock and disbelief and says, what are you doing? He sees in her hand that this jar was an alabaster jar. And they can smell that this is, this is pure perfume. This isn't the cheap stuff. It's not olive oil. It's not something, this is pure perfume. Nard, they called it. And it probably came from India. Imagine. Jerusalem and India, the distance between the two lands. And she doesn't just drip 
a drop on his head. She has broken this jar and poured it, all of it, over his head. The whole thing. And the disciples, they don't look at Jesus. They look at the woman and they sternly chastise her. What are you doing? What have you done? Why did you do that? Do you have any idea how much money you've just wasted? Do you have any idea what we could have sold that for? Do you have any idea how many people we could have fed with the money from that? If you were going to just dump it out, why wouldn't we just sell it? They're angry. She's wasted a whole jar of precious, expensive perfume. Now, I can't, Mark doesn't tell us this. Sometimes you've got to look between the lines. This three-year-long journey with Jesus has not been easy. These disciples have had a lot of traveling and moving. All of them gave up their livelihoods to follow this rabbi. They gave up their net, they dropped their nets, they gave up their stuff, they gave up their calling to come alongside Jesus for three years, over a thousand days. I don't imagine that they're making heaps of money. I don't imagine that they're eating super well. I think there's a lot of nights spent outside, a lot of nights in the stars, a lot of home visits and hospitality visits. This is not a luxury time that they've been on. And I'm reading in between the lines and I hear the disciples saying, we could have spent that money on the poor. Yeah, it's Passover. We would give to the poor. But do you know how hard it's been following Jesus? Do you know how difficult? Do you know what I gave up to be here? Do you know how much money I've lost harvest after harvest, season after season of not fishing? You're just dumping that out. We could have used that money. Mark doesn't tell us that. I think that's what's going on. They're angry. How could you waste this on Jesus like that? Jesus says something that's really strange for Jesus in Mark. It's the little words you got to watch for. Jesus stops. Perfume pouring down his face. He just probably smells like something incredible. It's probably overwhelming. He looks at the disciples and says, What's your problem? This woman has done something beautiful for me. For me. What do you, get off of her back. Leave her alone. She's done something beautiful for me. She's preparing me for burial. And you know what? The poor are always going to be around you and you can give to them at any time. But I'm only here for a short time longer. And she's doing this for me. At this moment, Something changes in the room 
one of the disciples gets up and he leaves quietly. The others probably stand stunned. How many times has Jesus put his needs before anybody? How many times has Jesus asked for anything, expressed a personal possession of anything? As far as I can count, very, very, very few times in the Gospels. Very, very few times in Mark. And when I see this story, Mark likes to sandwich stories. At the crux of this story, it's not about the money. It's not about the value. We know that. Just a, a day before, he champions the woman who gave two tiny pennies to the temple and says she's overwhelmingly generous. Here, this woman has dumped about a year's wages on his head. Take a whole year for someone to make enough money to buy that one jar of perfume. It's not about the money. It's not about the value. It's about the heart. And in the terms of this particular person, that woman felt compelled enough through relationship to actually see Jesus, the person. Not Jesus, the political agenda. Not Jesus, the would-be king. Not Jesus, the theological construct. Not Jesus, the inevitability of the end of the world. She saw Jesus, person. What she's done is beautiful for me. Somehow and intuitively, I don't think she knew what was coming. I don't think she had any idea that she was actually preparing Jesus for his burial. That's what Jews did. They, would, they wouldn't really embalm them the way that others would. They would douse a, de a decaying body in perfume to hide the smell out of love and hospitality. I don't think she knew she was doing that. But she was. And in a moment of, like, must have been angst, Jesus is realizing what's coming for him, accepts this love and generosity from this woman through relationship. The disciple who leaves, there's something just like, something just snap, snaps in the sky. Something changes. He's watched, he's listened, he's seen, he's followed, he's come to the point where he sees the potential of Jesus in real time, and, and now this is how Jesus is talking, I'm done, I'm out. I can't be a part of this any longer. This disciple, I think, was actually also very intuitive. I think he's actually maybe one of the most clever ones there. He knew it was coming. He saw what was on its way. He says, I want off this train before it gets any worse. I, I know what is about to happen, and I don't want to be a part of it. So Judas leaves, and he goes to find the high priest and the leaders of the religious establishment to sell Jesus out, to betray him. And Mark sandwiches this beautiful story between political tension and personal betrayal with this beautiful expression of relationship, of the person of Jesus.
I feel really compelled by this story. It's really easy for me, as it has been my whole life, to get wrapped up in the idea of Jesus and the truth of Jesus and the theological extrapolations of Jesus and the political Jesus and the powerful Jesus. And yet, I so easily forget the person. And so my hope for myself and for us this morning, for the church in general, is to, is to be like that woman. Jesus, whether it's two pennies or a year's worth of wages, to say, you know what, I, I'm giving my all to you, person of Jesus, because I love you. And I know you love me. And I think it's a really beautiful story and it's a really compelling challenge, at least I feel. And so this morning, my hope is that you just take a moment, maybe it's not right now, maybe it's later in the day, maybe it's later in the week, that you're open to hearing his voice, to, to, to knowing his spirit, and to re-meet Jesus the person, wherever you're at. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you came to the earth as a baby, not as a scroll, not as a textbook, not as an idea or a law, but you came as a person. Jesus, I thank you that you lived your life with people that you had all kinds of relationships, that you showed all kinds of moments of vulnerability, love, frailty, power, vision, imagination. Jesus, I thank you that you came as a person so that you could die as a person and not stay dead as a person. And Jesus, I thank you that as this story foreshadows your death, it also doesn't end in your death, but you actually come out of the tomb, alive, resurrected, conqueror of death in Hades, and that it doesn't end there, that you actually give that same spirit, your spirit, to us, that you can actually live inside of us, and we can know the Father through you that we can know the plan to redeem all things in the world through you. And Jesus, I thank you that you are not a far away, distant God. You're not a, a God off in the cosmos who's uninterested, but you are a deeply personal God. And I pray that we would have the courage to, to come before you and pour out whatever we have out of our love and relationship with you. And I thank you that you receive it and that you give back. And so I pray even now that you'd speak to us, that we would see you, we'd hear you, and we'd have the courage to follow you. Thank you for this, these things in your name. Amen.